Hello and welcome to episode two of Sprogcast, Men, Love and Birth, all about men in the birthplace. I'm Karen Hall. I'm Mark Harris. Uh, we hope you enjoyed episode one on breastfeeding. You know, we've had a lot of nice feedback. And it, you know what? It'd be really great if some of you listeners would get involved. The best way is our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash sprogcast. What sort of things do we want people to get involved with, Mark? And we, we'd like questions, I think. Yeah, just and, and anybody who comes across interesting articles they'd like us to discuss, or if you want to be on Sprogcast. Hey, that would be great. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And any recommendations about the kind of birth uh, folk you'd like to talk with. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So originally we were going to talk about risk in this episode, but as our discussion evolved, it turned out that the episode was actually going to be all about men in the birthplace, partners, midwives. How does their presence impact on birth? Shall we first have a look at some of the news articles that have been uh, in the media uh, recently? So, did you have a read of this article in the conversation, Mark, about um, men and supporting breastfeeding? Not only did I re- read it, I, I got the full version and, and looked at the, the paper in depth and was inspired by uh, the Australian experience. Um, they began to, in a, in a cohesive and structured way engage men um, in the context of their partner's breastfeeding and saw pretty phenomenal results. It's very interesting how it shows that men want to play a part in parenting from the start and there's more to it than just that whole um, giving a bottle in the night kind of thing. Absolutely. I I think what was particularly interesting was some of the themes that were coming from the men themselves. You know, they, were, they had an opportunity to, to speak about the kind of support that they would find benefit, beneficial. Um, things like really understanding how breastfeeding works. And he can kind of filter out that kind of information that's coming that doesn't fit with what he knows to be the truth. And, and he can only do that if he's got this basic knowledge about how it works. But also he needs to have some confidence in breastfeeding. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, goes back to a drum that I constantly beat about how efficacious uh, the evolutionary process has been. There's been selection going on down multiple, multiple generations so that we're now in a position where um, the the very pinnacle of breastfeeding uh, ability is present on the earth. That's a very interesting perspective that I think I meet people in antenatal classes all the time who would not feel that way. No, I get that. And, uh, you know, breastfeeding happens in a cultural context, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. You know, so, so there are cultural influences. You know, we've still got a situation where breastfeeding in public is a news item. You know, that just seems to me bizarre. It's like talking about inequality of the sexes in the 21st century. Oh, we still talk uh, about that too. I, well, I kind of think it should be a dead issue, you know. So this is a, a recent Australian study that told us kind of something we already knew, but it's nice to have more evidence around it, that even a minimal intervention that engages fathers around breastfeeding, which means antenatal education set and postnatal support, can significantly increase any breastfeeding at six weeks, but there's so many other social and cultural and psychological influences and the father's probably the main support person for most of the time. 
Yeah, I, you know, the Birthing for Blokes program really gives men an opportunity in an all-male forum to, to talk honestly about their reservations of their partner, lover, breastfeeding in public. And having an opportunity to talk about that in a forum that feels very, very safe. You know, I think there was a, either that article or another one I read around it suggests that sometimes men feel very um, disenfranchised or, or sidelined by the professionals. You know, if he asks yeah, questions... it was in this one. Was it? Well, if he asks questions about breastfeeding, you know, often, you know, a professional uh, doesn't say it outright, but will give all kinds of signals that, oh dear, we've got a pushy father here. You know, we've got a, a father that wants to be too involved, dare I say. And I, I think we, we certainly need to hear the message of that study. Okay. So um, what did you think about the Cochrane article? Well, it kind of le- leads on nicely from the, the men supporting women because it, it really does a really thorough meta-analysis, you know, which is meta-analysis for anyone that doesn't, doesn't know. It's kind of the combining of the results of, quite a few studies so that you you increase the power or the uh, generalizability potentially of your findings and it, it did quite a wide sweeping review and it came to the conclusion that there's not an awful lot uh, you can do about sore nipples in terms of uh, external application yeah so this is a Cochrane article called Simple Help for Painful Nipples in Breastfeeding Women. Um, slightly misleading title there because what they're basically saying is that everything that's on sale and marketed at you is something that will you will really need, that all your friends are going to hand you the purple tube saying, I swore by this, which is going to make you feel pretty certain that breastfeeding is going to hurt. And actually, most of them don't really do much anyway. You're right. You know, the marketing almost sets up a pre-frame that this is going to hurt. All by themselves. They're, they're part of the problem more than they are part of the solution. And this article doesn't really address that, but it does no. say you're kind of wasting your money here. Yeah. I, I think it's an important issue because y- you have to bear in mind that these products are being produced with a business model in mind. Yeah. So, so the marketing will seek to uh, appeal to your fears. Yeah. And it really very successfully does that and uh, must make the formula manufacturers very happy people. Uh, well, they might be in cahoots. No, who could? Oh dear, con- controversy. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do people still word, use the word cahoots? I'm glad that you did. Um, so this article concludes, thankfully, that face-to-face support and scheduled rather than reactive visits to support breastfeeding might make success more likely. So when it says visits to support, I'm thinking that means midwives. Um, so I would throw into the mix um, a good sort of rigorous up-to-date training for midwives in supporting breastfeeding because I know it's not always a big part of what they do. Well, it usually falls into most um, NHS hospitals uh, annual or biannual updating and it usually um, is in the form of uh, baby friendly which you know if you've got a hospital that's got the highest uh, ranking if you like in baby friendly um, they pretty much got their act together really. Um, but I take your point. There needs to be a thorough, rigorous uh, relook at how we support breastfeeding uh, women. I, I think most areas now have additional breastfeeding peer supporters, don't they? Yes, lo- lots of them do, trained at various different levels. Um, so Breastfeeding Network, NCT, um, Association of Breastfeeding Mothers all have peer support programmes. 
where they get usually sort of between six and 12 weeks of a training course and then varying amounts of supervision. So that that's available out there. It's not quite the same as a breastfeeding counsellor. No. Well, I would wonder whether we should have gender-specific peer supporters. Wouldn't it be great to have a social network of men who have done antenatal classes together, who are maybe living in a locality so they have social capital and can support other men who are supporting partners with breastfeeding? You mean the NCT? Is that what they do? There is some of that. <laughs> I think it should probably be more widespread. You know, when you look at the implications for extending breastfeeding uh, uptake and continuance over time in terms of health benefits, benefits and all those kind of stuff you know we maybe should invest a whole load of money in putting these kind of place these kind of things in place indeed now we've have of course just spent half our podcast talking about breastfeeding again that's your fault Karen, um, I yeah i know <laughs> Do you know, I, I got involved in some controversy uh, since we last spoke. I think it was the University College of London, King's College London and the University of Hertfordshire that published this bizarre piece of research suggesting that fathers shouldn't be in the birthplace. And when I read it, I thought, wow, how many pregnant women who were in the birthing process did they interview? And interestingly, what did you find? Uh, none. So this piece of research wasn't done on pregnant women or birthing women. Not at all. I mean, How did they find out that it would be bad for fathers to be present if they didn't actually ask any pregnant women? It was quite a small cohort for a start, but they applied um, a pain stimulus to women who, who weren't pregnant. And they found that um, having their partner with them uh, didn't decrease their response to pain. And in fact, in some circumstances, it raised it. This was a sp- quite a small study. All it looks at is perception of pain. And it, I don't know wh- about the quality of the study itself. That was probably absolutely fine. But there just doesn't seem to be any grounds for generalising this to then talk about fathers in the birthplace. I think that it might be a little bit more complicated than that. It, it shows you the power of the media to take this kind of research and blow it out of all proportion. I mean, I was on Five Live with Nikki Campbell and Michelle Odont as a result of this paper. I'm so impressed by your fame. (laughs) The thing is, you know, when a woman is in the birthing process, she's releasing all kinds of hormones responsible for facilitating her ability to manage the discomfort that she's in. It's taken totally out of context and and sadly should should be disregarded in my opinion. I think the issue around whether men should be present is a current one and uh, does bear some attention. So I've got a question for you, Mark. What makes a good birth? A good birth? Well, whatever a woman says is a good birth is a good birth. And so for me, that, 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 that releases me from the dogma around so-called normal birth mm-hmm. or, phys- or as I prefer, physiological birth. You know, sometimes that can be held up as the only way that a woman can have a satisfying experience in birth. And that misses the point by a long way. The only person that can say that birth is good is, is the woman birthing. Okay. She's probably going to say something different before and after. Absolutely. You see, we're getting back to a really strong thing of women speaking with women about their birth experiences. Mm. Now, you know, Dennis in his article talks about tocophobia. It's when a woman presents with a, a, a phobic response to even the thought of giving birth. 
Now we're talking uh, an instant phobic response and isn't about building up anxiety. It's that kind of instant response that some people get to spiders or, or the very idea of flying. And what we've seen is an increase in people presenting with this um, fear. Now, we, in the past, it would be women that have had a birth that had been traumatic for them who, who presented with tocophobia. Yeah. Now, now, women that have never had a baby present with tocophobia. And I wonder why, Karen. It's properly irrational, isn't it? But I, I know that in your interview with Dennis, you go on to talk about the media influence of one born every minute and that sort of thing. It, I think it's fundamental. Because, because what happens is women become exposed to the experiences of other and, and then superimpose their own fears upon what they've seen. So actually the old TV birth, what's the first sign of the woman going into labour? Well, that would be the waters gushing all over the supermarket. What do you see next? She screams. What's next? She's on her back in the bed with her legs in stirrups. What's next? The doctor arrives and tells her he's going to deliver the baby. Yeah. And that's actually, because it's almost comical, kind of benign compared with the utter sort of fascination with the horrific detail in One Born Every Minute. Absolutely. It's called reality television, but it's far from that. Mm, that's true. It's, it's a very carefully edited process that is designed to entertain. The, the whole idea of women speaking with women, you know, we, we don't live in a culture anymore where the extended family is valued. So we don't often have grandparents living in in a family with their their siblings so the, the grandmother gets to share her experiences of breastfeeding with the mother and the children get to see mother breastfeeding openly and and so breastfeeding becomes uh, the norm yeah so i've got a definition here from hensi goa from optimal care in childbirth big fat book that i dipped into um she defines it the optimal outcome of birth as the highest probability of a spontaneous birth of a healthy baby to a healthy mother who feels pleased with herself and her caregivers ready for the challenges of motherhood attached to her baby and who goes on to breastfeed successfully do you think that's too prescriptive well i, th I think it provides a frame a frame of reference mm. I, I just think dogma around um normal and all those kind of things is not helpful it creates a filter for us we're, we're not being fully present to the woman in front of us and we're superimposing expectations that are our own mm, yeah i get that the bit of this that i like is the bit where it says she feels pleased with herself and her caregivers oh yeah it's so important if if if, if caregivers haven't made a connection at a, at a sort of sharing of personhood level they've they've um they've fallen short of of what could be their best contribution and can men in the birthplace do that? Can partners be that caregiver? I, I think the role of men in the context of birth is to be fully present to their lover or their partner. You know, it, it's about um, them creating that sense that she is safe. Not, not because he's there, but, well, yeah, in a way because he's there. Um, it's a depth of connection that goes beyond rubbing her back and all those other things. You know, when a man presences himself so that he's there with her uh, and she senses that in this kind of almost, dare I say, inverted commas, spiritual way, then any activity he does flowing from that has even more impact. Well, me and Dennis talked about it, so it certainly crops up in the interview. And, and uh, De De Dennis is, 
it's clear that he also has experience of men being sidelined and left out. Mm. Do you know, if men having a full-on supportive role in the context of breastfeeding has such a sharp impact, what would happen if fathers felt fully prepared to be present in the birth room? Mm. You know, I, I reckon that there's an avenue here where men can experience what um, indigenous cultures have uh, in terms of rite of passage. You know, birth when experienced through full presence, can be a rite of passage for a man into fatherhood. So a rite of passage more than ticking a box. You've got to be there at the birth because that's what everybody does. Yeah, let's be honest. There's a portion, 98% of men, I think, are present at at birth. Um, But there's a big portion of those men that wouldn't if they felt they had a choice. You know, and those men are probably being affected by cultural dogma. And if they don't want to be there, wouldn't it be better if they weren't? Well, if they they don't want to be there, they're not present. Mm. You know, if they've got other stuff going off in their mind, you know, about where they'd rather be or or fears that they're experiencing, they they might be better off, as Michel Adant would say quite forcibly, um, outside the room. Yes. And and in my 20-odd years, well, 15 years of direct clinical practice and then other years tagged on, um, a lot of times the man is present, but also... the the woman's mother or sister or best friend yeah and i think the nice guidelines do actually mention don't they that having a woman there any woman doesn't have to be trained in anything but having a woman providing consistent support is actually associated with a lower rate of intervention Uh, wise women with women in the context of birth has has served uh, the human race for generation after generation after generation and is that not the midwife's role then i don't like the word should but it should be, shouldn't it? And so you, Mark, as a midwife, are you the wise woman? Me? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I once um, had a student who was brand new. Her name was Maggie. And she was an older student, a more mature student, let's say. And she'd hardly been um, in, the, in the birth room at all. And I stood back and watched her supporting this woman. I wanted to weep. Because this woman, with no inverted commas experience of the structures of birth, was offering the kind of support that I felt I would never even be able to, to tip my hat at. You know, I'm getting emotional now. You are. Just watching her was uh, a beautiful experience. And uh, I could never, ever be a wise woman in the birth room. I'm only ever doing my best. That experience uh, shifted my um, feelings about being present. In fact... I left midwifery for a while um, because I came to the conclusion that even the the presence of a man rich in masculine energy um, was depowerizing to women. That that's what Michel Odant says, isn't it? It, it, it is, and, and I think his years of experience of seeing what happens when a man is in the birth room it shouldn't be dismissed. I, I do think that a missing element in his. Um, thinking is this idea of a male being present in masculine energy being present as a man creating this safe space which isn't about the environment but is all about his connection with his lover and i think that can add a dimension uh, that michelle O'Donnell doesn't take account for yeah and i think i guess there's the couple dynamic as well there are going to be some couples who are an absolute team without a doubt and um you know i i think an exploration of uh the the evolutionary development of men and their hormonal response to birth 
is, is an important one. And when a man understands that he's hardwired to instinctively respond in the way he is responding, then he has some options in, in the modern world of uh, taking those feelings and responding in a productive way. I was fascinated when I listened to, through to the interview um, to learn that it wasn't even legal to be a male midwife until the 1970s. Yeah, 76. I think Dennis was one of the one of the early um, male midwives. Paul Lewis was another who was written extensively about midwifery. He's retired now. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't legal. And as we both know, I started in '94. There were 61 men out of 36,000. Now there's 91. So it's it's not exactly a growth area. One of our local hospitals now allows the men to stay overnight, but the staff don't seem very comfortable with that. I was thinking more about how having a supportive partner there could help ease their workload. You know, in, in an ideal world, those women that are inverted commas suitable for home birth or birth in a midwife-led unit are better off there. You know, the NICE guideline is suggesting for the first time that not only is birth in a midwifery led unit as safe as a doctor managed unit it's safer and if you want to avoid cesarean section episiotomy and a whole host of other interventions seek out a midwifery led unit i think the evidence is enormous and that the only question is why hasn't the evidence been taken account of and implemented and my answer to that would be probably that the power holders within the birth uh, structure have a vested interest in uh, women imagining they need a doctor in order to give birth. Right. And where where's that come from? Well, if you look at the last major paper that had an influence on birth, it was probably the Peel Report in 1971. Tell us about the Peel Report. All right. Well, it recommended, and I'm going to use the words of the report, it recommended 100% hospital confinement. Confinement, that sounds like imprisonment. Exactly. Uh, and that's the word they, they used. So uh, it recommended 100% hospital confinement. Home birth was the norm. You know, you gave birth at home unless there was significant um, risk, if you like, and then you were asked to go into hospital. What the Peel report said was that everyone should give birth in hospital, and it led to everybody giving birth in hospital, pretty much, where some areas have a home birth rate of about 1%. Mm. Now, now the major players in that were doctors, and they saw that paper implemented across the country. And why did doctors want that? What was the vested interest? It's maybe, at a very core level, um, job security. And that evolutionally driven desire to survive, which we now apply to uh, money, you know, which is why you get so, so many people caught up with earning money and all that kind of stuff. It's because it's linked to that visceral instinctive response of survival. What once would have driven us to hunt and gather is now driven us to, to work too much and to, to seek to control uh, our flow of money in. So is that basic sexism then? The the work of the men, the doctors, is valuable and what the women are doing is not valuable. Giving birth in, and mothering is, is less valued. It's certainly not economically valuable. This isn't operating at a conscious level, but, but I think, yeah, I, I think we're talking about systemic sexism. And do you think that's changing? I think it is changing. Dennis thinks that this new uh, NICE guideline is, gonna, is the most important piece of uh, evidence and recommendations since the Peel report. 
And he says, given the, the right support, um, it will lead to widespread change. So more home birth, more maternity units. The study itself is is really interesting, the birthplace study, because even though it concludes that having a home birth at home for your first baby is, inverted commas, uh, more risk, the, the difference between uh, an adverse uh, incident in birth is about three in a thousand births. So the, the risk isn't as high uh, as our obstetric friends would suggest. So are you looking at then talking about risk as being so tiny as to be not really a factor in decision making there? Well, no, because the, the, the paper does say that the, the percentage difference was significant. Mm. But I think words really, we have to be careful how we communicate about risk. But it's really, it's really important that people have access to the, to, to the information in a way that they can make a choice. You see, sometimes I, I did a birthing for blokes program in Sheffield a couple of weekends ago and there was a man whose partner was going to have a twin birth a dizygotic twin birth so two sacks and all of that and she wanted the birth at home and when she saw the consultant he said to her what I want is two healthy babies that is what you want isn't it and she she looked at him and, and said you know that is so ridiculous of course I do and he was using his words in order to make a suggestion that she was putting her babies in harm's way. I said to her, you should have looked him in the eye and said, I don't want you to feel impotent about that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I hear that all the time when I'm talking to people afterwards. They'll tell me quite a range of birth stories ranging from from just happy, positive ones to fairly traumatic experiences and say but at the end of the day all that matters is that you got a healthy baby and I feel kind of sad that that's all we're aiming for the bar is pretty low there isn't it me too I, I was speaking to someone not not long ago uh, who was talking about her birth experience and the intensity of the sensations and the challenge it was that, that for her it kind of built a sense of resilience and connection to the baby being born. Sadly, um, the baby being born uh, grew up. No, that's not sad, but grew up, became a woman, and then and then died in an accident. And she said her connection to uh, the birth and the experience of birth actually provided a kind of um, resource for her coping with mm, loss. That's really interesting. And uh, she was saying that a culture that seeks an epidural to dull that pain is maybe missing out on something that would be of profound val value when it comes to managing, uh, the, you know, the pains that we feel in life. That That is interesting. And I, I, I find that perspective fascinating and think it would be useful if, if it was more widely talked about. But are you then going back to idealising a non-epidural or non-medicalised birth? Uh, I don't think so. I think there should be a choice available. I mean, uh, again, Dennis published an article suggesting that pain or discomfort or or those kind of things around birth were really important for for us in terms of e evolutionary adaptation, and that when we remove that, we're we're going to we're going to influence uh, the development 
of, of humankind over time and he got lambasted because he was a male yeah. talking about women I'm sorry I was feeling that at the same time I have to confess I was saying well that's easy for him to say no he got he got hammered but it, it, the, the point he was making if made by a woman was very very important I, I don't think it's a question of idolizing. no if that point was made by a woman she would have been just as lambasted as being some kind of moon howling hippie it's like the epigenetic point about you know, of course, an evolutionary adaptation takes 5,000 generations to biologically have an effect, that's 70 million years. But we can be turning off certain functions of genes, you know, like the production of oxytocin, for example, um, by subjecting people to synthetic oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So these things potentially will have a more, a 70 year type span before it starts having an effect. And uh, so these, these things should be discussed, if you ask yeah. me. And here we are discussing them. So are we saying that women should hurt for the greater good? No. <laughs> no. All of it, all of it should, should be in a context. Yes, now. I'm just playing devil's advocate yeah. for you. I, I know you are. I got interviewed by Vanessa Phelps the other day, and uh, she wasn't as uh, aggressive as you. <laughs> I'm joking. I think it might be all the male energy that I'm absorbing from you. <laughs> well, that's shut us up, hasn't it? <laughs> Finally today, we've got the promised interview with Dennis Walsh. Dennis has been a midwife for 29 years and is Associate Professor of Midwifery at the University of Nottingham. He's authored a huge number of papers on the subject, many of which we've referred to today, and a best-selling book, Evidence and Skills for Normal Labour and Birth. Mark caught up with him earlier this week. Yeah, so one of the things I was saying there is that over the years, you know, when you observe men at birth, um, it's kind of three things in general terms, that men do, I think. One group are very involved, aren't they? Really connected. They've done a lot of the preparation. Mm. Um, so they're alongside the their partner. They know what's expected. They've planned it. Very supportive. Often feel as a midwife. I can sort of be in the background here because this is yeah. working really well, the dynamics there. Um, that's probably less common. Um, probably the most common is the disengaged male partner who feels I have to be there. Everyone goes, don't they? So I have to be there. But yeah. I'm really un ill at ease, so I'll just kind of disconnect a bit here. I'll just sit in the corner, I'll watch some telly, look at my phone, read something. And, you know, at the point of birth, I'll get up and sort of be involved. But yeah. <laughs> maybe cut the cord, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And then less common again, but you do see this, the aggressive, you know, uptight, you know, what's going on here? Can't you do something? Yeah. Upping the ante. Yeah. Uh, and, again, ill-prepared but out of their comfort zone but then acting out. So uh, you sort of see those three, I think, don't you? Yeah, I would say that's my experience. I, yeah. How long have you been a midwife now? 29 years, yeah. Practice. The last two years I've been out of practice but still hear the stories from other clinicians that I, that I see. Do you do you still think, Dennis, that men have a place at birth? You know, Michelle O'Don is yeah. fairly adamant they yes. don't. Yeah, I've changed my view there. I mean, um, in the sense that I think there is a place, but I would always, always say if you're going to be there, do the preparation. You know, you can't come in cold into that situation and be a facilitatory presence. You, you have to have had some exposure, some chat, some reading, some planning. Um, it's not rarely, I think, an intuitive place that for a man to occupy without doing some kind of prep. So I feel a bit sorry for, about the sort of 
society imperative that sort of requires and expects you always to be there. Right. Uh, and in a way, I, I sort of feel a bit sad about the old old way, which was to say, look, not really comfortable to someone else, you know, that you know is going to be a, a good companion, often a friend, you know, sister, mum, yeah, that kind of thing. And, you know, I'll be somewhere else. I'll be around, but, you know, um, and we haven't got that anymore. So it's like you have to show your manhood in some shape or form by being there, even yeah. though you're, you're sort of a presence that's not always a functional presence. Yeah, it's almost become a test of your love. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting you say that. So, so you're saying on one hand, uh, if, if men are going to be there, there needs to be some depth of preparation. Absolutely. Ready yeah. for it. Mm. And yet, the kind of preparation that's available through the NHS, is, it, it, it's minimal for women yeah. and non-existent for men in yeah. many places. That's right. Yeah. And do you remember back in the 90s, we, we tried to do a bit of this. We, we did a males-only session a couple of times. Wow, I, don't I did that. that. We did that in, in our team in Mallory. I mean, we off, I offered it because, well, as a male midwife, I suppose, there's a more natural thing you can offer there. Is that yeah. You could just have a session with the blokes and a colleague would sit with the women. Um, and it wasn't just labour stuff. You that, know, the, back in the 80s, was yeah, it? Yeah, and back in the 90s, yeah. 90s, yeah, yeah. wow. And I remember that some of the things that were coming out wasn't just labour, it was stuff like, well, how do, I, how do I adjust to her changing moods in pregnancy? You know, right. What's the appropriate response when, when some of that's going on? We lightened it a little bit because we did some formal, not formal, but we did some group stuff around sexual positions <laughs> for late pregnancy. Excellent. With photographs and everything. Not photographs, with drawings. <laughs> there wasn't any video footage, was there? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> a bit of an icebreaker. You have to do that after they've got a bit more comfortable with you because it's a little private, isn't it? And I've heard of that. And when I've done workshops around the place, I've heard of services that have tried that, where they've done separate male, female stuff, then brought them together. Right, so a little bit of it goes on. That's ahead of its time in a way. Well, I mean, yeah, probably back then. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. I think the current provision, it's all over the place now. It's really fragmented now, hasn't it? So it's a bit hard to get a handle on what is normal NHS practice these days. But certainly traditionally, it, the male was just an appendage, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, fairly, I so, certainly the authority that I worked in fairly recently, it was uh, women got an hour of uh, yeah. parent craft yeah. education, you know, which is woefully yeah, in- inadequate. Yeah, and I think one of the really sad things that's happened with NHS provision is it's been deprioritised. I think some of that's because, well, they say to you, show me the evidence that antenatal preparation, childhood preparation makes a difference to outcome or something, and there's not that much hard evidence for that. No. But there's loads of evidence that women who go enjoy it, get a lot out of it, they yeah. make connections. We build some social capital. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Um, but that's a soft outcome, isn't it? It doesn't always rate with planners and no. people who are investing money in services. There's a more critical need now, isn't there, for that, because we're getting all these groups of women coming into the service who've been exposed to the, the media presentations. There's actually a few papers coming out on that now, the detrimental effect of things like One Born Every Minute. You know, we've had there's a bit of data on saying that things like tocophobia are appearing in first birth women. Used yeah. to be something that you related to after a terrible traumatic first birth. So your second birth, you had this fear wow. of labour. Yeah, it's appearing in first birth women. They so say I'm terrified of this, and I haven't even been through it. The thing. Wow, as a secondary yeah. effect to watching other people's experience, well, as yeah, and hearing their experience or watching it on telly. So yeah. the reason I know this is that locally in Nottingham, they've got a, a traumatic stress clinic that 
first birth women, first pregnant women are referring themselves to in advance of labour. And when they ask them about why, they're saying, I'm totally terrified after what I saw or what I've been told. You know, I'm absolutely terrified of, of going into this. Wow. So that's a bit of a new thing. We, we never used to get that so much. The need for some preparation is even more acute now, I think, because of the sort yeah. of discourse out there in society about birth. Tocophobia might be a new word for some, but, I mean, but in, in a nutshell, it's, it's yeah. fear of labour and yeah. birth. Disabling fear of labour and birth, not yeah. just normal fear, but right. know, so terrifying. So a phobic wanna, response. Yeah, so I want to have an elective caesarean. I want an epidural in, in, the, in late phase wow. of labour. You know, I always say to people when I'm doing education classes that, A, don't watch birthing uh, yeah. one born every minute yeah. for yeah. a start. Yeah. Uh, but I also point out that the, the women that are being uh, filmed on One Born Every Minute are a self-selecting group mm. because obviously they're happy to be filmed mm. at this point in their life. Yeah. So if you wouldn't be filmed at that point yeah. in your life, you probably are outside of this yeah. self-selecting group and your experience wouldn't be anything like theirs. Yeah. I'm really yeah. setting up a frame of reference, if you like, that suggests that you're going to have your experience and it'll be your own. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the editing that goes around it often isn't about the birth stuff it's about the other narrative the other bits of the story you know yeah. what's going on with the relationship it's almost like a soap opera i say that and i've hardly seen much of it myself well, i avoid it like the play do, do you get many in your work in education do you get many student midwives that have come through and have cut their teeth on this yeah type of stuff? yeah it's really very common to see it in um sort of supporting statements for for applications for military really? training you know the consciousness of birth in terms of out there in society is feeding into this so we've seen a, a third increase in applications for military training courses wow. in the last five years wow and we know some of that's related to you know the stuff that's called the midwife there. and one born every minute yeah i mean call the midwife's different kettle of fish isn't it it's yeah, almost it like a romantic yeah but i think there's an interesting appeal there are some bits of it that i think are very attractive the autonomy yeah not in a non-institutional setting and all of that yeah. Which, you know, we'd like to recapture in a, in a modern obstetric context, yeah. modern childbirth context. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a bit of a romantic thing that's it, going it's on. It's almost there. harking back to a pre Peel report era. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, right. when I was born in that era mm. where home birth was considered the norm yeah. and it was the complicated births that were reserved for hospitals. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, even in some of those, they were having breaches at home, twins sure. at home and things like that, weren't they? Sure. Yeah. So just to recap on what you said, Men, if they're going to be present, probably need good preparation. We know that evolution has had, has, has had its work uh, in, in the sense of um, preparing a woman's uh, hormonal response mm. in the context of birth. That when, mm. she's, when she's in an environment where she can lose herself to the, the primeval mm. surge of, of uh, mm. her hormones, mm. birth works mm. perfectly well. Mm. Men, I guess, have evolved... Uh, with their own set of hormonal responses in the context of, of birth, mm. which maybe would explain this surge of adrenaline mm. that either leaves him being aggressive at one yeah, end of the pole yeah. or, or passive and introverted at, mm. at the other. Mm. Over the years, Dennis, have you, as you've been with men in that context, c can you say anything about, um, stuff that you've offered them that, that might have, uh, helped them manage? You know, if I was really honest, I'd say I'd probably been neglectful as a midwife, lacking aware and lacking awareness. And I, I've always had a thing of prioritising, establishing rapport 
Yeah. Partly that's the bloke thing a bit, isn't it? Where yeah. there's another male in the room, so you want him to feel at ease. But I haven't always prioritised facilitating practical things they could do. No. So I, I actually feel sad about that. I should have been more aware about that when I look back over my career. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, there are little practical things you can you yeah. could do there to give them yeah. help and give them pointers. It's just a lot to be aware of yeah. when you're a midwife in that context. Yeah. Isn't yeah. there? And, yeah, and your focus is primarily with the woman, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going on there. Some of it's institutional about sort of mediating all the risk and intervention stuff. Yeah. Trying to ward off. Fending yourself. off the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I wish I'd had time over again to yeah. address that in a better way. We've, we've known each other, I think, almost 20 years. Yeah. Maybe, well, maybe more. Days, I was yeah. a student midwife when you were... Uh, team leader of Mallory, yeah, and then you went on to ninety-one to, to manage Wisto, and then you went on yeah. to be research and development midwife, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you did 90s, your yeah. PhD. And when I started, there were sixty-one male midwives yeah. out of thirty or thirty-six thousand. I don't know how many there were when you started. Uh, probably less than that. Yeah, I didn't really have a handle on it. I, I know that um, one of the very early ones is Paul Lewis. He's yeah. now retired, who, and he did in, he did his early, I think his master's research on the first batch of male midwives in Scotland. That was published in 1981. Yeah. So, yeah. Given that as we sit here chatting now, there's 91-ish male midwives. Right. So that's a, a growth of 30 <laughs> in 20-plus years. Yeah. Do you see midwifery being a growth area for men? I don't know. I've got a little bit... Um, we've spoken about this before, but I, I was sort of a late kind of... Um, believer in an understanding of a sort of feminist side of all of this, the feminist critique of childbirth. And I suppose I, and when I first started doing academic work, I got quite exposed to that. And I would still say this, that if you're going to become a midwife as a bloke, that you need to be aware of that, that writing yeah. and, and what that's been saying, because you need yeah. to have a level of sensitivity here yeah. that's required because of the specialist nature of the work. So... I think it's always going to be a marginal option, probably, for men. Um, yeah. In a way, I wouldn't like to see it become, I don't know, 50-50 with females. Because I think, you know, you look back over history, it's essentially women who've been the companions. I'm not saying a man can't do it. We know they can. And, you know, the, the little bit of recent research about oxytocin release and that stuff that men have yeah. in, in empathic encounters and all that shows that there's a there's something that's not just gender specific here it's broader than that yeah but in the main i think childbirth will remain primarily female companion and i think that's appropriate probably yeah i'd be a bit concerned if it started getting yeah there's an influx of blokes well you can't legally exclude men now no, was, from the not. from 1976 yeah. it became yeah, legal for us to, to yeah. practice yeah. yeah i had a hiatus in my midwifery mm-hmm. career yeah. i came to a point where i felt that even my presence was depowerizing yeah and um it took quite a major life event for me to to go back into midwifery because i when my wife died, I recognised that it was an area of my life where there was a lot of passion. Yeah. I'd, I'd enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. certainly now I, I see the rest of my career being teaching, educating uh, men yeah. who are seeking to be present for the women yeah, they yeah, love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed that a lot of cases where men are present with their partners, there's also another female 
yeah. companion, mm. either either a mum yeah. or a sister or a friend. Yeah. You've yeah. noticed something similar. Yeah, yeah, true. Probably not that often would you say, you know, both of them are sort of primed in really facilitatory ways. Often, as I was saying before, the group that disengage a bit often will have a third person there yeah. who's doing the more alongside companionship stuff. But, yeah, I mean, why not have two people who are yeah. aware of that and are providing that support even better Yeah, in a way, isn't it? That's not a reason why we shouldn't put lots of work around trying to help men prepare for that role. No, definitely not. No. I, I wonder whether there's a role for a man to stand um, in his kind of masculinity, yeah. that he kind of provides mm. th- this presence that mm. creates space for a yeah. woman to sense safety. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of like a, in a spiritual way, creating a, a space for her to... to to be aware of being safe, whereas in maybe bygone years it had been fending off predators. Yeah. Now yeah, he's sure. kind of creating yeah, this quiet yeah, space. Yeah. I think that needs examining a lot more. It's kind of probably easy to see how that may be dysfunctional if someone gets aggressive and yeah. and all of that. So I can see the role for that. I think we need some thinking and planning around how to enact that in a way yeah. that will be. Yeah. I, I, I guess everyone. I'm not. I'm not think. I'm not thinking that. That, that his presence is a sort of like not, not like a birth bouncer yeah. um, <laughs> guarding the yes. birth space in that sense yeah. I think there probably is a role for him to be aware of the lights being dim yeah. making sure she's yeah. she's warm making sure that anyone comes in the room is invited and yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's that kind of role yeah. but I'm, I'm more talking about this kind of still presence yeah. um, focused on her yeah you know, that almost creates a force field. You know, mm. he doesn't have to do anything to do it. Yeah. It's, it's more a sense of connection. Yeah. I suppose you might want to ask, well, how would that be different to what a female companion might might be doing? Um, but, yeah, I think that's worth certainly worth exploring. No, I get that. Yeah. In a kind of home birth scenario, you sort of see that a bit more obviously, don't you? Because if she's labouring and there's a, a doorbell ring... And he's going to go and answer it. And who is this person it, yeah. and, and, you know, what are they coming here for? And yeah. don't you know what's going on? It's harder to see how somebody does that in a hospital just because it's not their space. But I think we could do a lot more work around making the room a sanctuary and, and communicating that and saying, you know, take a little bit of ownership of this space yeah. while you're there. Yeah. You know, this is your space, her space. So, yeah. Yeah. Sort of, uh, I, I tell you what, I, I put something on Birthing for Blokes Facebook page last week, mm. and usually I put something on there, it gets shared all mm. of a hundred times. I put on something around a woman's experience of her husband being sent home after the birth of the baby. So the yeah. baby had been born, yeah. they'd had a little bit of time together, mm. she goes down to yeah. the postnatal environment, yeah. and he's told to yeah. push yeah. off, yeah. and... Um, I wrote a little bit about that, put it on Facebook. Over three and a half thousand shares. Yeah. So so this yeah. issue of men not being welcome in the hospital mm. seems to be an issue. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I know that there's a move to, to respond to that because there's a lot of places who are trying to provide a facility where the male partner can stay with her overnight. I think there's even some organisational targets around achieving that too. Really? Yeah, it's coming centrally. What, national? From, yeah, totally. yeah, I... I can't be absolutely certain no. on that, but I certainly know about moves in a number of hospitals that are saying we need to address this. This, is, this isn't good enough to say just push off right. the first night with a new baby and the partner and you're excluded. Yeah. You know, that can't be right. So, yeah, 
But a lot of the hospitals I've worked in use the, the legislation around not having mixed wards. Mm. And I always thought that was a bit of a, a stretching the spirit of uh, that legislation. Yeah, yeah, that's finding an excuse to protect the institution yeah. through some kind of pseudo reason why it's yeah. infringing on other women and all that sort of yeah. stuff, isn't it? I know Nottingham City had a postnatal hotel set up. Yeah. I don't know whether yeah. it's still open. Yeah, I don't know whether it's being used in quite the same way. There's been some changes there, and some of it's been resource-driven, I think. But do you remember the old um, the old home-from-home home type yeah. settings where the partner could stay overnight, there were double beds? Yeah. You know, and I can remember... You wouldn't get those beds through health and safety now. <laughs> no. The midwife saying, I come into the room and I see this bare man's bottom, you know, <laughs> who's climbing into bed for the night. You know, if it was his own home, that's exactly what Exactly. Which I suppose leads on to the, you know, we've been talking about the birthplace study and stuff, and there is a growing sense of awareness that home and midwifery-led units are probably the place for for, for yeah. so-called low-risk women to be giving birth. Mm. I know that's your particular area mm. of interest. Mm. Yeah, so we need to grasp this moment because we've never had the research being so strong taken up by national guidance that's very explicit about this now that's... We need to get to an, another place of performance managing units on providing it. Wow. We're not at that level yet, but that's the direction of, of travel. And if we don't grasp it now, we're going to lose it. Some people have said it's the most significant development since the Peel thing in 1970, which was heading the other way. Yeah. So it's the, first, it's the most important development in at least 50 years of UK maternity care. So, yeah, I think this is the moment. Exciting exciting days to be involved as a midwife and as a doula and, yeah, and as any kind of birth-related yeah, 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 professional. Yeah. Dennis, I know um, you've been a midwife for 29 years, do you say? Like if, if, you were, if you were to drift back to the beginning of your career and imagine that you were starting fresh... What would you be pursuing now? Talking to a new group of student midwives this week, and I was saying to them, they're actually in at the beginning of something exciting. You know, yeah. they're, they're coming into the profession where something like midwife-led care has got a really strong research base. It's embedded. You've got the place of birth stuff that backs that up. There's no better time to be a yeah. midwife in terms of, you know, realising the role around normal birth and, yeah. and all of that stuff. So, yeah, obviously there's... There's other things going on that kind of undermine that, the whole risk agenda and all yeah. that sort of stuff, the women who are older and high BMI, all those kinds of things are there, the pressure to medicalise. But, you know, we've got this other counter force yeah. that's also leading. So, yeah, great time to... Yeah. to we we need some really life. distinctive midwifery leadership, don't we? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. yeah. We've kind of suffered a bit from that, I think, in yeah. terms of leadership at sort of local service level in different parts of the country where that hasn't always been in place. Because I remember when I quali- qualified, we were excited about Winterton report and changing childbirth. Yeah. And I know this report is different yeah. in the sense that it's actively um, supporting birth in midfield units. Yeah, except that, you know, that was flagged up, actually, if you look at the original stuff in 1993 from Winterton and, and changing childbirth. Yeah. Was, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. Some people are saying that the, this birthplace study is almost like a delayed fulfilment of what that policy was about. In fact, there was an event last year that was, was it 20 years on? It is 20 years on since the 2013, it would have been, since changing child work. And they were marking it and saying, you know, what have we achieved in those 20 years? And the positive side of that is to say, you know, we're, we're going places now. Yeah. We're getting an impetus to realise that dream to some extent. Um, and that's great. 
Brilliant. Thanks for t- spending the time. I, I know my lasting memory uh, was when we were in a caseload bearing practice, yeah. Norwich yeah. Road, do you remember? Yeah. yeah and it was yeah. a Sunday morning and uh, it was a home birth in, a, in water. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, the two, oh, I, I always remember two male midwives yeah. at a home birth. The statistical chances of that yeah. were, were very, very small. All I remember is that you left me to clear up. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Dennis, thank you very much for spending the time. And that's, sadly, all we've got time for on this uh, second episode of Sprogcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. And, hey, don't forget, get in contact. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Questions, thoughts, suggestions for interviews. Thanks for listening, and uh, goodbye from goodbye me. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.